Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us in your word. We pray for the kids downstairs in Sunday school and for us uh, upstairs now that uh, you would be working in us by your Holy Spirit to teach us the things you want to show us today. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this morning, we're continuing in our new sermon series that we started last week, looking at the life of Abraham in the Old Testament book of Genesis. Genesis uh, chapters 12 through 22 is what we'll be looking at. And it makes good sense for Christians to spend some time looking at the life of Abraham, because the Bible is constantly holding Abraham up to us as an example of faith. In the Gospels, for example, our Lord Jesus says that those who believe as Abraham did are children of Abraham. That's the language he uses. The Apostle Paul speaks that way too. He calls Abraham the father of all those who have faith in Jesus. And Paul appeals to Abraham as the great example of someone who was counted righteous before God because he had faith. James, in his letter, also appeals to Abraham as an example of someone who not only believed, but put his faith into action by doing good works. So all this is Abraham's lasting reputation in the Bible. He's the father of faith, who was counted righteous before God because he believed, and whose faith worked itself out in the way he lived. And the story we read last week Our first introduction to Abraham fit well with that reputation, didn't it? We read last week how the Lord called Abram to leave his country and his kindred and his father's house and go to some new place that God would show him later on. And God promised to make Abram into a great nation through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. You remember, I'm sure, Father David speaking about the great purpose of God, the purpose that God had in mind here, to bless all the families of the earth through one of Abraham's distant descendants, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we read last week how Abram believed God's promise, and he obeyed his call. He got up and he went, just as the Lord had told him. He took with him his wife, Sarai, or Sarah, as we'll know her later on in the story, his grown-up nephew, Lot, who was at that time the closest thing Abram had to an heir, and a group of other people who were attached to him as their leader, herdsmen who worked for him and so on. He took these people with him, and he left the land he knew, never to see it again. This was a huge step of faith, wasn't it? Because as amazing as God's promises were, it's not exactly clear where Abraham is supposed to go or what he's supposed to do next. God promised to make of Abram a great nation, but it's not clear how that can possibly happen, since he doesn't have any children and his wife, Sarai, is barren. God promised to give Abram's descendants the land of Canaan, but it's not clear how that's going to happen either, because that land is already full of other people. 
Abram has to kind of just wander around Canaan with his caravan of dependents, waiting for whatever God is going to do next. And he did. He trusted God. He had faith in God's promises, faith strong enough to make him leave everything that had been familiar to him back in Ur, and to put himself in a situation of great uncertainty and of complete dependence on God. So yes, in last week's reading, it was easy to understand Abraham's reputation as the father of faith, counted righteous by his faith, whose faith worked itself out in his life. But that was last week. This week, it's not so easy to see, is it? You have to squint pretty hard. In the passage we read this morning, Abram doesn't seem like an example of faith. He doesn't seem like an example of anything that we would want to imitate. Here we see Abram acting not out of faith, but out of fear. And as a result, the choices that he makes, the things that he does, are foolish and wrong. They don't glorify God, and they hurt other people. This morning's story, compared to last week, at first glance it doesn't seem very edifying or inspirational. It seems rather kind of shocking and icky. It's not, a, it's not a happy story. But, brothers and sisters, we know that the whole Bible is God's word, and that whenever we read any part of it, God is speaking to us through it. So let us have faith this morning that even in a story like this, which might make us uncomfortable, which might seem to have almost no redeeming qualities, even in a story like this, God has something precious to teach us. So let's dive into our text. After all that, uh, by way of introduction. First, we're going to examine the story itself. And then we're going to try and answer the question, how does this strange story fit into the larger story of Abraham's faith? How does this little story fit into that larger story? And I think that question will also help us to hear what God wants to teach us about our own lives of faith this morning. So first, let's examine the story itself. It all starts with a famine in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, that is, in the land of Canaan, where we left Abram last week. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. He can't feed his people in Canaan anymore, so he picks up and moves to a different country where he hopes he will be able to. And this is fairly normal behavior throughout human history, including in the Bible. The book of Genesis, in fact, ends with Abraham's great-great-grandchildren doing the same thing. The the twelve sons of Israel all moved down to Egypt together because of another famine in Canaan. Now, of course, Abram knew that Canaan was an important place in God's plan, the land that he had promised to his descendants. And so you might think he ought to have stuck around in Canaan and just toughed it out through the famine, if that's possible. But on the other hand, what God promised to Abram was to give Canaan to his descendants, not necessarily in his own lifetime. And he hasn't given Abram any very clear instructions uh, on this point. So as far as I can tell, it wasn't necessarily anything wrong with Abram's decision to leave Canaan and to go to Egypt. I don't think there was anything wrong with that first verse of this story, but things start to go very wrong indeed in verse 11. 
just as they're about to get where they're going. Here, let me read those verses to you. When Abram was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Yeah, things are, are going very wrong indeed. This is pretty heartbreaking stuff, isn't it? Abram tells his wife that he'd like her to pretend she's just his sister. In other words, Abram doesn't say this part out loud, but the clear implication is that if the Egyptians decide they'd like to take her to be Pharaoh's wife, she should just let them. She should just cooperate. I find it pretty hard to imagine a worse thing that a husband could say to his wife. The Bible doesn't tell us how either Abram or Sarai felt in this moment, but I can't imagine either of them are feeling very good about this decision. Okay? Now, on the one hand, we have to remember where we are in the Bible. This is Genesis. It's early days yet. God has not given his people the law of Moses. He hasn't sent his prophets. The coming of Jesus Christ, of course, which completes God's revelation of himself to his people, is still a long way off. So we have some advantages that Abram didn't have, right? Abram can't just flip open his Bible and read what the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That would have been a good verse for him, but it wouldn't be written for another uh, thousand years and a half. In fact, Abram and Sarai's whole background is pagan, as Father David emphasized to us last week, right? They don't know everything that we do about God's law, about his design for marriage, and so on. So perhaps, in a sense, we can't hold Abram to quite the same standard of moral behavior that we would hold each other to today as Christians. But on the other hand, it has to be said that what Abram does here is wrong. There's no way around that. It's very wrong. And it can't possibly be the case that Abram doesn't know that on some level, I think. Even a pagan should know that this is not how you're supposed to treat your wife. In an earlier draft of this sermon, I, I went on and on and on about how wicked Abram's actions are here. Uh, but I was helped to realize that as true as that is, it was kind of missing the point. Yes, what Abram does here is really bad. That's, that's true. It's no doubt extremely hurtful to his wife, extremely damaging to his marriage. But why does he act this way? Where is this coming from? And the answer is, of course, that Abram is afraid. The whole reason for this sister ruse is that Abram doesn't want to be killed. He doesn't want to die. His assumption is that if the Pharaoh decides he wants Sarai, he'll think nothing of just killing Abram to get him out of the way. Well, we don't really know if Abram is right to assume that. Certainly, rich and powerful men do sometimes act this way. Um, to take a biblical example, in 2 Samuel 11, one of Abraham's own descendants, the King David, will do basically this same thing, right? Killing his friend Uriah to take his wife Bathsheba. That was 
the all-time low in David's story. Would this Egyptian pharaoh have done the same thing? Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. We'll never know what the pharaoh would have done because Abram doesn't give him the chance, right? Instead, his fear has him taking extreme measures to protect himself from even the chance that he might die. And this is where we see how feeble Abraham's faith still is. It looked last week like he had a lot of faith. But this week we find out one of the limits of his faith. And that's death. When Abram is faced with the possibility, real or imagined, of his own death, then he flips from trusting God to taking matters into his own hands. He's willing to trust God with a lot, to leave Ur, to wander around Canaan for God. He can trust God with a lot, but to trust God with life and death? It seems Abram's faith doesn't go that far. Not yet. So, under his direction, Sarai goes along with the ruse. And sure enough, the Egyptians are very taken with her beauty. And learning that Abram is just her brother, supposedly, they take her into Pharaoh's house to live there as one of his wives or concubines. Abram gets a nice gift of sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. That's Pharaoh's way of saying, thank you for letting me take your sister. And uh, what's supposed to happen next in this plan? We realize at this point that Abram doesn't really have an exit strategy, right? Sarai is presumably stuck in Pharaoh's house. Even if the famine in Canaan ends, how is Abram going to get her back now that he's given her up? This is a big problem for Sarai. It's a big problem for Abram, and it's a big problem for us. Because this messy situation is not just a personal tragedy for this couple, it's also derailed God's whole plan of salvation, it seems, right? Remember God's promise to bless all the families of the earth through the descendants of Abram? Well, how is that going to happen now? How is Jesus Christ ever going to get born? The descendant of Sarah and Abraham, how is he ever going to get born if his great ancestor Sarah is stuck with Pharaoh instead of with her real husband? Abram, acting out of selfish fear instead of faith, thought he had a really good idea, but the consequences turn out to be catastrophic for everyone involved, and for the whole world. Well, if you've been coming here for a while, maybe you've heard Father David talk before about these two great words, but God, but God. Here, they're, they're in our passage more or less, and over and over again in the Bible, just when things are looking their darkest, when it looks like there's no hope, like the whole game is up, we get these two words interrupting the catastrophe and surprising us. But God. And we have it here in our passage this morning in verse 17. But the Lord. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. For Sarai's sake, and for the sake of Abram, her husband, 
and for the sake of his plan to bless all of us through Jesus Christ. The Lord interrupts this catastrophe. He sets things back on the right course. Pharaoh, learning somehow that these plagues have befallen him because Sarai is really Abram's wife, he quickly tells Abram to take her back and please go away. He can keep all the animals and stuff. Just go. And so they leave Egypt and they go back into Canaan, to the Negev region, leaving richer than they came. In spite of Abram's feeble faith and his foolish actions, God has saved his people and put his plan of salvation back on course. So there's the story. Now, why is this story here? And how does it fit into the larger story of Abraham's life of faith? At first thought, we might think that this is a story about Abraham learning a lesson. Learning to trust God more. That maybe his faith is a little bit stronger by the end of the story after he sees how God saves him. That's a nice thought, but actually that's not the case. We know that Abraham actually didn't learn anything from this story. We know this because of another story later on. It comes in Genesis chapter 20. We'll be skipping over that story in this sermon series in part because it's so similar to this story that we're talking about today. In that story, Abraham makes the exact same mistake all over again. There in Genesis chapter 20, Abraham and his caravan go on another sojourn, not to Egypt this time, but to a region called Gerar, the territory of a Canaanite king. And while they're there, Abraham does the exact same thing. Again, he's afraid of being killed for his wife, so again he employs this sister ruse. Here it is, listen to this, in Genesis chapter 20, verse 2. Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. It's the exact same thing, exact same thing. And of course, just like last time, God steps in to rescue him, to safeguard his great plan of salvation. You can read the details about how God did that sometime in, in Genesis chapter 20. For our purposes this morning, the point is, however startling it is, it's, it's true that Abraham actually doesn't seem to learn anything here in chapter 12. He goes on to do the same mistake all over again. And in a way, this makes our question even more burning, right? What, what's going on here? How does this story fit into that larger story of his life? How can it be that this guy, who keeps failing to trust God, who keeps making the same foolish decisions as a result, how can it be that this is the same guy who's held up to us as the father of faith, as the example of what a life of faith is supposed to look like? How can that be? Well, here's the answer. What makes Abraham the preeminent model of Christian faith is not that he's so good at trusting God. It's that God was so good and so patient and so faithful to him. It's not that he was so good at trusting God, but that God was so good and faithful to him. Over the course of Genesis chapter 12 to 22, over the course of this sermon series, you'll see that Abraham, he does learn to trust God more. His faith does grow amazingly strong. 
In our passage this morning, Abraham's faith reaches its limit with his fear of death, right? Without spoiling anything for you, when we get to chapter 22, you'll see that in the end, Abraham has faith that God is even more powerful than death. So he does grow, he does learn. But he grows slowly, (laughs) gradually, with lots of ups and downs. One moment, Abraham does something that seems like a great example of faith, and then the next moment it seems like he's forgotten everything that God ever taught. It's a bumpy, bumpy road. But when we get to the end of the road, I believe you'll see why Abraham is rightly called the father of faith. By the time we get to the end of the sermon series, we'll be able to pray together, God, make us children of Abraham with a faith like his. It's a bumpy road, a real roller coaster ride, but Abraham got there in the end. And he got there because God brought him there for no other reason than that. How did Abram, the pagan, the liar, the horrible husband, afraid of dying, never seeming to learn his lesson, how did he become Abraham, the father of faith? Not by his own effort, not by his own natural gifts, not by anything he did at all. Abraham grew to become the person God wanted him to be because God took him in hand and led him through life so, so patiently and so, so faithfully. When Abraham's faith was weak, when he acted selfishly or fearfully instead of in faith, God didn't give up on him. Over and over again, no matter how many times Abraham seemed to put God's plan in jeopardy, God continued to show himself faithful and to put Abraham back on course. And brothers and sisters, what God did for Abraham is actually what he does for all people of faith, for all of his saints, for you and me. When you or someone you love is struggling with their faith, struggling to keep on believing in the face of doubts, struggling to make Jesus a priority in the face of the world's temptations, or struggling to trust God with something especially scary or difficult. When one of his people is struggling with their faith, you can be sure that God is never just sitting back and saying, well, I hope he figures it out. I hope he gets it together. No, God is never doing that. When God sees his people struggling to continue in faith, he acts, he rescues, he dives in to protect his people and to preserve his promise. God is able and he is faithful to preserve us, to keep us growing in faith until he presents us perfect at the end. As we read through these chapters of Genesis, on the one hand, we're looking at the story of Abraham, of his crazy life with all its ups and downs. But at a more profound level, we're reading the story of God. The story of God's faithfulness to Abraham. And friends, if you are a Christian, that's also your story. 
when you look back on your life with Jesus at the Last Judgment, what you'll see is not the story of your success, how you were faithful enough and righteous enough to stick it out to the end, as if. What you'll see is the story of God's faithfulness to you. When you look back from that final vantage point, you'll see how he kept you from stumbling. How when you began to stray, he sought you and brought you back. How he kept you close to him and growing in him. How he kept you learning and how patiently he protected you even when you weren't learning. When you look back at your life, I'm sure you'll see plenty of times where you made the same mistake twice, just like Abraham. You'll see plenty of times where you should have learned something the first time but didn't, just like Abraham. But you'll see that in spite of all the ups and downs, God brought you by the hand, slowly, patiently, but unfailingly, to the place that he has prepared for you in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your unfailing, patient, and faithful love. Thank you for the grace by which you save even sinners like us who keep making the same mistakes over and over again. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would lead us always in life, keep us close to you, keep us growing in you, and bring us to that last day, uh, perfect and spotless, to be presented to Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.